BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I think that's Helena. Hello, I'm Louis Theroux, and this is my podcast series for BBC Radio 4, Grounded with Louis Theroux. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone that I've always been keen to talk to. But with us all in lockdown, this leaves us to the mercy of the internet and not always the most technically savvy of guests. I'm going to put you on speaker, so Paul, because Paul might have helpful um, tips to add in. Okay, there we go. Hi, Paul. Or indeed, presenters. Oh, you're, but you're not coming out of my headphones. That's right. Let me unplug my... There's so many levels to this. Now try that again. Paul, speak again. Oh no, that isn't working. Not only are we trying to see each other via erratic video conferencing software, but we also need our guests to record their half of the chat we're about to have. Paul, do you want to phone Helena directly and then you might meet more across the tech side of it than I am? Why is he even FaceTime me and then I can show him what is staring at me on the screen? Today, my guest, if we ever manage to connect in these Wi-Fi and interweb-reliant times, is esteemed actor Helena Bonham Carter, My interest in her stretches back further than most people. Beyond her collaborations with Maverick director Tim Burton, before she even appeared in Room with a View, back to when she and I went to the same school. I was anxious to find out if she remembered me. Okay, thanks, Paul. Nice job, Paul. That was good. Paul did well, didn't he? He did very well. He just guided you through the process. I feel like I've landed an airplane. It felt like listening to one of those thrillers where either someone's landing an airplane or <laughs> someone's having to defuse a bomb. Maybe that's... <laughs> the girlfriend of the techie guy is defusing a bomb that's going to blow up either a plane or a hotel. You're going to see three wires. A yellow one, a red one, and a black one. Clip the red one. It was literally that tense. It was so tense. We survived it. I can still see him. He can't stay away. Paul, it's not your podcast, it's my podcast, please. It's fun seeing people's rooms, isn't it? Are you having a nice tour of people's... Little bit. I'm trying to take the measure of your background. Yeah. I'm seeing Ivy. I think that's London light. Yeah, you're right. I'm in London. You're in your... You're in your messy room. (laughs) Yeah, you haven't seen the mess. Shall I show you? (laughs) Look, look, look. This is the mess. This is what I'm tackling. And we look at the boxes, but that's evidence of putting order into the chaos. One of the small advantages to this strange passage of being locked down has been you have the... I hesitate to say time. Like you, I've got children and mine are at home. I'm assuming yours are at home with you as well. So there's definitely not a lot of time. But in those bits of time you do have, you have an opportunity to address small domestic issues like (laughs) organising, packing boxes. The thing is, I'm tackling those long postponed things. It's sort of excavating my... uh... Oh, look, somebody's come back. That's evidence of another person. Hi, there is a life form. Okay, so I have got kids, but I think they're a bit older than yours. Having uncharacteristically done a bit of research, (laughs) I'm going to hazard a guess and say that your children are 16 and 12. Well done. What gender are they? Uh, Nell is 16. No, wrong. Wrong. Wrong way right. She's 12. (laughs) So you've got younger ones. Here's the thing. We're not that far apart. I've got a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 5-year-old. 
three yeah. boys. So you got the and five-year-old. And the five-year-old is sort of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Not as a human, but just in the amount of attention he needs. So not only are my children older than yours and much more independent, but also I'm divorced. So I have them half the time, which is actually very handy in this lockdown because it creates a bit of a variety and a change to the landscape of your life because you either have the kids in which they do demand certain amount of attention even though they're 12 and 16 and then for the rest of the time when I don't then I've got a huge amount of time which I am using and I am treasuring and relishing because you can I be the captain about that but do you remember early on in the crisis there was some confusion about whether children could go back and forth between yeah. divorced parents they decided in the end that it was okay but was there a moment when you thought it might be a case of either you or your yeah. ex? Well, there was one the case road? when Tim was actually in France at one point, and we thought, well, we might never see him again. Really? <laughs> but he came back. I was going to. I'm going to not be coy. I'm going to very yeah, yeah. boldly say that your ex-husband is director Tim Burton. Yes, well I'm done. Put that out in the public you realm. You did some your research. Secret, well done, Louis. <laughs> your secret is out. Yeah. But he's a little on the older side because if you go over 50... Well, I'm over 50. I'm five years ahead of you, aren't I? Or am I four years ahead? I don't think quite five. I think four. three or four, maybe. Then the risk goes up. And Tim, I say Tim, I've met him once. I'm going to presumptuously call him Tim as though we're friends. Yeah, you can call him Tim. I like the idea of being friends with Hollywood people. I think he'd like to be your friend, Louis. <laughs> I think we'd get along. And you know what? You don't look dissimilar. If you curled your hair, you could be related in fact, you possibly are. Well, I'd love to imagine that we were similar. I'd love to be half as talented as Tim or yourself, because that <laughs> sounded for a moment like I was directing too much attention towards your ex-husband. <laughs> I'm only 10 minutes in. I've already completely misbehaved. It's all right. Are you on good terms? Is it all, is it all hunky-dory? Well, they're very good terms. It takes time, though, without being inappropriately indiscreet. Ours has gone through all sorts of passages, but now it's settled. But it does take time. Can I ask what's been your experience of the pandemic? I hope you haven't suffered any losses, you know, yeah. family or otherwise. No, I've had a very good and easy and rather enjoyable, unstressful, up to this point, lockdown. My mum's the most vulnerable. She's the worry, but she seems fine. And in fact, she's enjoying life more because she's been ill. So before she felt somewhat deprived of, you know, a larger life. But knowing that everybody else is not having a very big life means that she doesn't feel very deprived. She doesn't have any FOMO. Which I think is quite nice consolation. You don't have that feeling of Missing other out. people are having more fun somewhere. Yeah, I think it's a massive consolation. Also, professionally, everybody is as unemployed as I am. Actors are always looking over their shoulders going, oh, so-and-so's got a job and you can feel very inadequate very, very quickly. There's perpetual competition, I think, in most of our lives, whether you're an actor or not. And that's been immediately taken away. So we can all sit back. We're positively encouraged not to think about the next thing. Think about now or just be. And did you have a project that you were supposed to be on? It was perfectly scheduled, this lockdown. I just finished the second series of The Crown and we were almost completely finished. There was one more week that they had to do. I think they were scheduled to go and shoot in the Pyrenees and then that got rescheduled suddenly to Ben Nevis because they were going to shoot an avalanche. Then they had to cancel it. So we were nearly at the end of an eight-month shoot. I needed a break. So other than tens of thousands of people dying, it's worked out very well. An economic collapse, yeah. Um... <laughs> do you think I got away with that bit of 
glibness. It's a very difficult line to, yeah, I think you get away with most. That's why you're still here. (laughs) (laughs) But don't you think I've resisted quoting this? Yeah. But I do try and have a high-minded moment in each episode of the podcast. And I feel I can say this to you, Helena, because we had a similar education and we'll come on to that. Uh, Wasn't it Lord Byron who said, and if I laugh at any mortal thing, tis that I may not weep. Oh, that's a good one. I take that out of my back pocket about once a year. I don't even know what it's from. I've never read Byron. It's just one of those quotes that gets recycled. No, I think it's the thing of justifying a joke. It's quite good. I'm going to use that. We watched you last night with Exotic Joe, and I did think, you're a clown. You're really brilliant at being humane one minute. You look as if you're going to cry, and then also you're just taking... You are laughing. I mean, you take the piss out of people. Take the piss. There you go. You pulled out of it, and then you did it. That's fair enough. Just to refocus. So thank you for joining me on this conversation. And just to say on the outset, we can talk about whatever you feel like talking about. For me, this is an opportunity to talk to someone whose career I've followed, consistently working, but never really kowtowing to Hollywood, however you care to define that. It seems Mm. to me that you've managed to maintain your own identity in a world which has its own boxes or pigeonholes that it likes to put people in. Also, we were at school together. Yeah. And not to say that has to be the focus of the conversation, but that's something I'm sharing with with listeners at this point. And there may be things you'd like to talk about as well. I was thinking about the documentary that I did. That touched on uh, on your mother's side. I guess it was your grandfather. He played a role in saving the lives of a number of Jewish people fleeing the Nazis. So there's a lot to get into. From raising the Holocaust, I'd like to go into something much less elevated and talk about Miami Vice. One of the things that came up in the research was that you actually played Don Johnson's love interest. Yeah, I think A Room of the View was a big hit. When things in those days were big hits, when you're just starting out, then suddenly you get lots of calls. And I was asked to play a drug-addicted doctor. And I said, sure, because I was a big fan of Miami Vice. And when I arrived, they realised that I looked much younger than they thought I would. How old would you have been? I was 20. And they panicked because they worried that Don Johnson, who probably would have been in his, what, 30s I think he's probably late 30s. I can't remember. He was very attractive. Might look like a paedophile. Yeah, exactly. Which is not what they were going for in Series 3. Not part of the story. That's one of the gifts of this profession, I'd say, is that you never know what the next adventure's going to be. You've no idea what you're going to be asked to do. And you go off to Miami. I remember waking up in that blinding light. It's just so extraordinary how different people live on a different side of the world. But here's the thing. When I read that you'd been in Miami Vice, I thought, that's extraordinary. I I knew that you'd got your break in Lady Jane, the story of the nine-day queen, obviously a Tudor drama, and then famously in Room with a View, playing Lucy Honeychurch, the E.M. Forster adaptation. And then I thought... Wow, she played a drug-addicted doctor. It just seemed a leap to see you in that milieu. But actually, you were sort of Lucy Honeychurch with a drug problem. (laughs) Well, the other thing is that I wasn't... And I'm not impugning your range, but that was sort of cut-glassed English accent. I didn't have much of a range. Also, I was not very worldly. I was a very slow and late... I am a late developer. I'm still not very worldly. But then I guess I was out in the big world quite young. Very early on. Yeah. But also, I didn't do youth. I didn't do adolescence. I didn't do, like, drugs or drink when I was... I was at Westminster, like you were. And, um... Well, let's get this out there. So we were both at the same London 
public school. Yeah, for boys, really. I'm saying that because I'm trying not to plug a school that has extortionate fees, especially if you're a boarder, as I was. I think you were a day girl, is that right? I was definitely a day girl. I was at Liddles. Where were you? Because we were all put in houses. Well, I was at Liddles as well. Were you Liddles? I'm so aware of the audience thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, we went to Hogwarts, basically. It was Hogwarts in London. Instead of wizards, you'd say offspring of the super rich. Yeah. I'm overdoing it a bit. But it was said that the beams in College Hall, where people ate their meals, the beams had been hewn from the wreckage of the Spanish Armada. It was that kind of place. Yeah. It was folkloric. Also, we had assembly in Westminster Abbey, which is extraordinary. Famously, John Dryden went there, Ben Johnson, the playwright, and also Shane McGowan. Didn't know that. Lead singer of the Pogues. He might have been a year or two above you. I think he left after a couple of years to join the punk scene. I remember your brother. He was in the choir bit. I was part of the choir, not because I liked singing, but because I liked sitting in that choir bit. And I remember Marcel being next door to me. Is that true? Does he remember? Do you know what? I texted him before I did this interview. Okay, first of all, I'm assuming you don't remember me. No, I'm sorry. But I do remember Marcel. You've said that. (laughs) You don't have to say it again. Anyway, I texted him and I said, what do you remember about Helena? And he said, bear with me. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. She sat next to me in the choir, was very beautiful, dressed like a pre-Raphaelite milkmaid. (laughs) Pretty rad for 1983. And blew everyone's mind when she played Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion. She was so good. Also, she was nice and approachable. Oh, thank you. So that was his recollection. Do you remember being in Pygmalion? Yeah, it was great, because I just walked straight into the part. I didn't even have to audition. There were no other women who wanted to act it. It was almost like, please, will you play Eliza? I said, yeah, it's a great part. Had you done acting before then? There was a girl in my school when I was 13 who got on Grange Hill. Do you remember Grange Hill? Of course, I loved Grange Hill. Flipping it, Tucker. Yeah, watched it religiously. So Karen Stanton was one of my best friends at school. And we all, basically out of envy, wanted to be on Grange Hill too. I feel like I didn't really sell that flipping neck, Tucker. You can do one more take. Flipping neck, Tucker. Flipping neck. I just threw it away. Flipping neck, Tucker. It was super cringe when I did that. But anyway, because Carrie got on Grange Hill, I just thought that's the cool thing to be. She was talking to Doreen English, her agent, on the school phone, and I heard her say Doreen English. And I phoned her up and pretended that I knew Carrie. Which, of course, I did know, Carrie, but that I had a blessing. And I got on her books. So that was when I was 13, when, in fact, my dad was pretty ill. He was in intensive care, which I'm sure had something to do with it. So I had started going up for auditions. But there was a lot... Everybody at South Hampstead, which is where I was, wanted to be an actor. So there was a lot of competition. So when you get to Westminster, there was no-one. There were just fewer girls. What struck me about the school we were both at was that the girls arrived in the sixth form, at which point the boys, after two or three years of being boys only, were in this sort of state of repressed sexual tension. They'd only Mm. been around each other. I've compared it to San Quentin prison. But when the girls arrived, imagine if at San Quentin they released, you know, a hundred or a few hundred attractive young women for the last two years of your stretch in prison. The other thing, and not to make it all about (laughs) sort of psychosexual stuff, but because Mm -hmm. I skipped a year, I arrived in the sixth form at the point at which the girls arrived with my voice still unbroken. Yeah, right? how old were you? I would have been probably 15, but a very yeah, young 15. Very young 15. 
My testicles were descended, but utterly hairless. <laughs> I mean, I was just completely out of my element. And I think I was conscious of just not being capable of mixing at that level, mm. not having the social wherewithal, even in a physical sense. And emotionally, I was no better. I mean, I was a very immature person. Yeah, me too. Still but am. there were girls there who seemed like they were ready to go out and face the world. But maybe that was just how they looked. Well, I do think it's probably a veneer, what we put out. I mean, I certainly wasn't, but then I dressed like a Victorian milk maid. But I think we accelerate quicker. I think we do develop a bit quicker. But everything takes a long time. We all develop at different paces. One of the things that strikes me when I consider your oeuvre, if I can use that slightly pretentious word, is that you've maintained that you've got a body of work, you're very distinguished, you've worked consistently to a very high standard while never somehow, so it seems to me as an outsider, mm-hmm. giving in to Hollywood and maintaining some sort of outsider status. Again, this might all be in my head. I might be projecting. Is that just something I'm assuming because you've got a distinctive dress sense, that you have your own style that's mm. sometimes described as quirky, though I promised myself I wasn't going to use that word. Yeah. A certain sort of, I don't know, neo-Victorian or goth chic. I'm the last person to be talking about fashion. I don't even know the terms. But what I'm trying to say is that to what extent have you been aware of keeping a certain distance from Los Angeles and Hollywood? Nothing is deliberate. You can't, as an actor, you're not really an architect of anything. You're always at the mercy of what other people are going to decide you're like. You're going to be typecast professionally and then you're going to be typecast in the press. And I think the most important thing is not to be convinced or bewitched or in any way influenced or listen to other people's typecasting. I remember when I went to L.A. when I was really, really young... I'm feeling really inadequate there because I just thought, well, I haven't got six foot legs. I don't have the body that most actors who work in Hollywood have. But then I thought, well, I'm not interested in those parts anyway. I don't want to be the girlfriend. And then the parts were really appalling when I started out. I mean, they really were two-dimensional. Always described, you know, principally by what they looked like and they always had to be sexy and beautiful. But they've come a long way and we're allowed to be older and we're allowed to be misshapen. We're allowed to be English too because when I started out, it only cast actors to play baddies. That, do you remember when it was like Alan Rickman? He suddenly was like, oh, my God, he's amazing, because he, yeah. he was the sheriff. And it was just like, yeah, we can do baddie. And then suddenly we got all the baddie parts. And then bit by bit, suddenly it was OK to be English. People just go, oh, my God, I love the way you... Because you were English. They, people give you more credit Class. than you deserve in yeah. terms of their perception of your intelligence, your sophistication. Yeah. But also, there isn't the downside also that people take you at your own estimation, especially in LA. So if you do the sort of British thing of self-deprecating and saying, oh, I, I wouldn't be any good or I'm sure. Yeah, they believe you. And if you don't push yourself forward, then you tend not to get the work. Now, when I see you, I see some of those qualities that I have, a little bit of that, but maybe I'm wrong. Evidently, they haven't been a disadvantage to you going up for roles or mixing with real industry types. I don't know. I think there were just different hurdles at different times. I think it took a long time for them to realise that I didn't exist in a different century. I wasn't typecast through being sexy, but I was in a corset for years. And then I did Fight Club and I was, oh, my God, she can be modern. She could do an American accent. Oh, she's got legs. She can do an American accent. She's not on wheels. And has a punky haircut. I was watching bits of that last night. It really holds up. But full disclosure, I remember seeing that and sort of seeing you in a different light. Because you play a sort of punky femme fatale, pulling 
Brad Pitt into a room just sort of going around and being sassy and having an attitude. And I remember thought, oh, wow, she really can be someone else, like someone cool. Mm, I was cool suddenly. I'd been very uncool, apparently. I mean, the thing is, I don't really look back at anything that I do. And I just sort of go from, it's a very ad hoc, oh, what what is around? You're always at the mercy of what other people see you as or don't see you as, and then you fight for something that you really want. And it's it's all about the writing. What's now great about the period that we're in, that sort of big TV renaissance or flowering or whatever, suddenly good writing, people are spending money on it. Before it was always the case that the better the script, the smaller the film was going to be. It was going to be an independent niche film and it was never going to be popular. My first day on Planet of the Apes, which was my big concession to being in a big commercial Hollywood film, I thought the script was not good. And I'd gotten up at 1.30 from my ape makeup, and I got to the top of the mountain before shooting at about 8 o'clock and I found Dick Zanuck at the top of the mountain having walked up. He was the producer. He says, this is a great movie, you know, it's so exciting. And, and we were just looking at all the people coming up the mountain and I said, yeah, but it'd be great if the script was a bit better, you know, just like the dialogue. <laughs> he said, doesn't need be to be. a bonus, wouldn't it? He said, doesn't need to be, that's why we hire you. It's up to you to put some sense into it. And I was just like... You're spending all this money, all this talent, Colleen Apt, all the designers, and everyone's pouring in it. It's a foundation in there. Nothing, we can't make it any better. But it still made the money. But now people are interested in psychology. People are interested in characters. Or at least they always were, but the people who pay the movies didn't think they were. And I think because some of these new dramas, instead of being films, they're episodic, right? So you've got series on streamers like Netflix and elsewhere, mm. and the BBC, of course. And they can roll out storylines that are very sophisticated. There's the space to open up and explore different kinds of storytelling. Yeah, and people and development of character. You don't have to play everything in the first minute. You've never lived in Hollywood, is that right? Well, I did for the two long jobs that I did. I did for six months when I did Fight Club and another six months when I did Planet of the Apes. It takes six months to film those. Yeah. Seems a long time. It is a hugely long time particularly when a lot of the time you're not in front of camera at all. How did you like being there? I think as a visitor, there's a very easy lifestyle in LA. The food is great, there is the sun, but it's a holiday. It's not a place that I could live in. I had fun, but I knew it was limited time I was going back. You, I was going to say, you've been around so long and then I know. that makes you sound old, but you're no. not really old. Well, I'm 54. I've been around But you've been for... working since you were... How old were you when you were... Car- As Lady Jane, I was 18. It was meant to go back for Oxbridge and I didn't because I got Lady Jane in the Oxbridge term. I didn't watch that at the time. In fact, I watched a little bit just in preparation for speaking to you. I hadn't realised it's directed by Trevor Nunn, the theatrical legend. It was an extraordinary job to get. I mean, Trevor Nunn was God because he ran the RSC. He went on to kind of co-create Cats. Cats. Yeah, he'd done Cats by then. I'd seen it five times. I used to do Cats in my drawing room. I could do a little for you now. (laughs) Did you like Cats? The nicest thing I could say about Cats is that I really love Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) I think Cats is a girls' musical. (laughs) Jellicles do that, Jellicles can. The Rum Tum Tugger is a curious cat. You could be Rum Tum Tugger. That was a quote from the... Uh... Yeah, I know it was a quote. 
I love cats, but I remember Trevor taking me to me. I think it was Michael Horden. And we had to go on a really long car journey. And, and Trevor said, look, I'm thinking of doing a musical next. Can I just test out the story on you? And he told me the entire story of Les Miserables. I just thought this is just not going to go anywhere. How wrong you were. Look, what's happened? You've disappeared. No. I suppose it was bound to happen. Everything was going so well. And then Helena, or the digital image of her on my computer, vanished. What happened? The battery went. Battery on the laptop? Yeah. So what happened? So now it has to recharge. It's no end of... have a little snooze. It's no end of exciting technical (laughs) developments. Of course, yeah. How long would you like? Can we restart at 2.30? Perfect. Everything will be set up by then. Love it. Brilliant. Okay, look lovely. Bye. Which gives me plenty of time to remind you that you're listening to Grounded with me, Louis Theroux, and I'm midway through a conversation with actor and school friend, even though she doesn't remember me, Helena Bonham Carter, though we're not quite through with our technical difficulties. I've decided to raise the tone and slip into evening wear. For people out there in Radioland... Before I was wearing a hoodie looking like a police impression of a suspect in a mugging and now I'm in a peppermint blue sports jacket. I'm doing the Graham Norton show right after this and so I thought I'd dress up a bit for that. God forbid you should see below the waist wear stained pyjama bottoms. Actually that's not true, I'm wearing shorts. But I've let standards slide during lockdown, haven't you? Are you recording? Yeah, I'm just working that out. Because this is gold. Yeah, so gold us is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Let's really try even harder. I haven't really... I like dressing from my bottom side, you know, dressing the whole of me. The whole, not just choosing a half. Yeah, well, you can. These days, people are, aren't they? Are you actually only wearing shorts? I am wearing shorts, yeah. And socks. Socks and slippers, yeah. What's the point? The world's ending, so yeah. steer into the skid. I like dressing up because it changes what I feel like inside. It doesn't really matter what I look like. You know what I mean? Well, this is it. Which is a great segue because you're known for a distinctive style. When I recall you at school, you were sort of reclined in an armchair and your legs were coming out of a kind of froth of lace. (laughs) Where does that come from? I think I've always liked dressing up. I think I just dress up for fun. And then I definitely dressed up in a Victorian thing. I think I wanted to be in Little House on the Prairie. Did you ever watch that? I remember that. I didn't watch it. It was a programme set on the frontier of the American West. I saw you more in sort of Edwardian or late Victorian mode. Yeah, well, the Thousand Prairie was, but it was America. it was, yeah. They did wear petticoats. Yeah, and they were in the Wild West. I'm going to segue neatly. So when I was doing my reading for this... I came across a few profiles, and one was by Lynn Barber, and she made a great deal... Oh, she was horrible, wasn't she? ...of how you dress, and it was one of those rather acidic profiles. Yeah, she was really bitchy. Did it bother you, that? It basically said you were attempting to desexualise yourself, and she sort of took a scolding, schoolmarmish tone of saying, why does she dress in such a ridiculous way? If she's going to dress like that, she might as well wear a baby grow. She obviously doesn't want to grow up and she just doesn't want to be seen as a sex object. So she yeah. wears these ridiculous outfits with boots looking like... what? Well, oh, a Bisto kid. That was the example. A Bisto kid. What I objected was that she was so nice to me in person and then so horrible in print. Like, she was full of compliments about how I was dressed. And then the Sunday... I remember I was working with Richard E. Grant... He so hated the article that I think he wrote to her 
and even Jilly Cooper. I remember getting a letter from her because she was so outraged at how openly bitchy it was. But she might have had a point. I might have been desexualising, but I don't think it was conscious. I think I took a long time to grow up. I think the nastiest thing she said was... Thanks for bringing it up again. <laughs> Should I not mention it? No, you know what? Because no, it was the bit that I read and I thought, you know, it's one thing to have an opinion about how someone dresses, but then just... I think it was something about my moustache. Well, I, do, I thought that was... Not very nice. She said you had a moustache. I thought you were in a role, like you'd been wearing a moustache for a role or something. I didn't assume she meant you actually had a moustache. No, I have a Frida Kahlo moustache. I should be proud of it. The moustache that Selma Hayek notably did not have when she played the role of Frida Kahlo. I think Hollywood felt that middle America was not ready for a female lead with a moustache. Moustache isn't the right word. I think there should be another word for a woman's moustache. She definitely said it. I had a moustache. Like, you said you were accelerated in, uh, in the sixth form. A mumstache. A mumstache. You know how they accelerated you at Westminster? In some ways, me getting quite so famous so early, I really wasn't ready for it. It took me a long time to catch up with myself because I did become quite well-known quite early. It meant that I was in full view. And a lot of the time... And did you enjoy it? Well, the fame bit, no, because I think you became much more self-conscious. You're self-conscious anyway when you're young. But then when people then going, oh, she's not very sexualized, that's even more self-conscious. It took me a long time not to take much notice of it. You can't take any of it seriously, certainly not as you get older. But when you're young, you don't know who the hell you are. Part of the thing of being well-known is you become very quickly aware that it's nothing really to do with you. It's all about what other people want you to be or not. And that's the healthiest way to treat it, do you think? I do. And I think it's a bit like Twitter. In the end, you just can't take it on. Whatever negativity you experience, you've got to engage, you know, your active mind and realise the fact is people are going to have nasty misconceptions or even accurate things that are hurtful and yeah. you can't cling on to it. You've, insofar as you can, you have to let it go. Yeah, you do tweet quite regularly. I tweet quite a lot, but I don't ever tweet anything very controversial because I know it's only going to end badly. If you're the least bit sensitive, then you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. And I think with Lynn Barber specifically, I've never been profiled by her. The very thing you might appreciate as a reader with no skin in the game, with no involvement with the person being profiled, the cattiness can be enjoyable. A.A. Yeah. A. Gill, another writer in, I suppose, a similar vein of being actively nasty at times mm. although he's he's dead now every time he reviewed me he'd say something that felt to me pretty horrendous and yeah. it was hard not to be a bit bothered by it especially when people come up to you and say oh, that thing that a.a gill said about you that was wicked wasn't it you know with a sense of glee and you're like i didn't even know he'd written anything about me oh no it was awful don't look at it <laughs> Oh, thanks for that. He was a critic. That was his um, job. The thing is, we always remember the criticism, don't we? Because on some level, we agree. This is the thing. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I always tell myself I don't care, so I don't. Sometimes I feel it's a bit of a, a betrayal of the sisterhood. I've never had men, frankly, be... Well, AA girl has, but that was a critic. But as an interviewer, it's a horrible thing. But sometimes it's like other women are just going to be so horrible. Camilla Long, so bitchy. Was she? Yeah, and it has been about other people, and I go like, oh, I'm not going to trust you. So you were talking about being not ready for fame, and when it came along, it was a shock to the system. Is that right? 
There is a thing with the acting world, is a lot of the time you're taught about the acting, although I wasn't because I didn't even go to drama school, but a lot of people aren't quite, and you're never really taught about how to deal with the fame. There should be fame school, really, because some people really come cropper. I think people who aren't in the public eye in any way yeah. find it maybe hard to understand why fame could be anything but a positive or see it as perhaps self-indulgent to complain, to complain about, about, it. about yeah. it. I can understand. I don't really complain about it. I think you just mustn't care too much about the onslaught of opinion about you. Well, I was going to say, so if there were a fame school, they would teach you how to deal with negative attention, horrible reviews. What else? Well, don't go on the internet. I mean, just don't go there. Basic rule. Don't look up what people think about you. It's none of your business. Somebody said that, which I thought was a good one. It's none of my business to know what other people think of me. You've got to go back to that poem if, you know, treat the positive with the negative in the same way. There's some line that he wrote rather better than that. Treat those imposters both the same. What, success and failure, is it, or something like that? Yeah, exactly. You're going to tell that to your boys? I hope so. How are they doing? They're downstairs, allegedly homeschooling. How's it going? It's not brilliant. I feel a bit sorry for them. They're playing a lot of Fortnite and... Similar type video games, what would they, which I think is not yeah. the worst thing. Because do you know what? That's how they socialise now. That's how yeah, they how talk to their do. friends. Yeah. The first day I was being a bit of a disciplinarian, and then I realised. So what they're doing is playing video games, but they'll have their phones next to them, yeah. and they'll be talking to their friends. Yeah. They're not actually isolating. They're doing the opposite. They are interacting with their peer group. Yeah which is really important. I think a lot of people, particularly like my mum, I feel they feel very connected with people, more so than other times, because people are so conscious of the fact they're almost endangered species. So they're phoning up, they're being cherished, they're being looked after. Do you think? Or not? Definitely. And I think we're all aware of the fragility of, not to sound too grandiose, but humanity. We always thought we were the, the apex predators, and I suppose we are humans, But how strange and how ironic that it should turn out that we're at the mercy of a life form that isn't even really a life form, a virus, a cluster of DNA with protein around it. You know, we thought we had the run of the place, planet Earth. I guess COVID-19 had other ideas. Yeah. I'm going to gently nudge us towards a different subject. So is this related to something you said earlier, which was that you were a late developer? Do you suppose in some way when you became famous that maybe that made you retreat inward a little bit? Because I'm aware that you stayed living at home into your 20s, through your 20s, right? Is that right? Yeah, 30. Is that connected to what you said? I think possibly. I think 20s for everyone is a time for trying to find your identity in the big world. I think I was a late developer for lots of different reasons. Part of it was probably looking back on it because of my dad. My dad fell ill when I was very young. It was while he was in intensive care that I got an agent. So on some level, I just thought, got to get out there, got to be self-sufficient. And in another way, survive this trauma by just reinventing myself in a way. So on some level, I was super old. Another level, I was very, very young. And I just wanted to remain home. And then when I did finally leave, in fact, moved here, it was only then that I became really, really sad, which I never had. I went and became an actor. It's funny how in trauma, lots of times, your response can be very productive and creative. It was only then, in my 30s, that I had a kind of mourning of my father. 
of what he'd lost when he became ill. Because when he was 50, he had an operation that meant he was paralysed and blind. I went and did lots of therapy. It only came out then that unconsciously, not consciously, I was trying to make up for it and say, OK, his world's diminished, and also my mum's, because she became a carer, and she still was a working psychotherapist. But on some level, I think, I thought, oh, I've got to make up for it, do something diverting. So I'd go off and do jobs, and then I'd come back and tell them all about it. So I was very much married to my parents for a long, long time and didn't really grow up. I spent a long time not growing up. That's extraordinary. So you would go out and be their emissaries, not literally, but in a sense that you'd go out and uncover things or have adventures on sets around the world and then come home and then sort of download some of those experiences. Yeah. And they must have found that very rewarding. Like how lucky they were to have a daughter who was doing that for them when their world had become so small. I think mum said something. When people become really, really ill, I think people are much better now talking about illness, whether it's physical or mental. But then, which was in the 80s, mum said, like, a lot of their friends just didn't talk to them. A lot of amazing friends came to the house and would just visit dad. It became a really interesting place because all these people would come through. It was like a salon. His brain was amazing and remained amazing. It was an amazing conversation, a big sort of on history and current affairs. But then there were other people who just didn't know what to say to my mum if she went out to a party. But they could say, oh, how's Helena doing? And then that would be a way of having some contact. She said, you're like the dog, you know, when Dad became ill. People could talk about you. Everyone talks to each other if they've got a dog. So it's a way in. But I also think that there was a lot to be said for staying at home. It was a very, very interesting household. And anybody who meets my parents, I know I sound like I've still got arrested development. But they really were extraordinary. My dad was extraordinary and my mum remains extraordinary. If it's not too intrusive to ask, your mum's breakdown, was there something that occasioned it? Was it diagnosed? I mean, nowadays we tend to use words like bipolar or things like that. Was it something like that? No, she's not at all bipolar. She had a depression. I think there's quite a lot of mental health issues in our family, but I think there are in most families. She's a psychotherapist, so it's very much talked about. But it was propelled by the death of her father, which led her into therapy. And at the end of her therapy, her therapist said, actually, you should be a therapist. So in a way, it was the making of her. It was definitely the making of her. And she's been one of the few people that have been very, very open about having a breakdown, wearing it almost as a badge of honour, as you should, because to go through such a thing and then come out and rebuild yourself, it's made her fantastically compassionate and able to help a legion of people because she's been there and she's known how to navigate herself out. It's lovely to hear someone talk so unambivalently about their love for their parents. Just the experience of doing these conversations has showed me that it's perhaps more common for there to be some sort of ambivalence and it's more normal in some ways for there to be domestic discord. I think what you have, from what I hear, is something exceptional, which is parents who were very loving, who loved each other and were mainly only supportive of you? I think so. I think illness, in whatever form, my father's illness, took a lot of space up. It's like having a child or a sibling who's ill. It's about them. And my father was an incredibly modest character, but the palaver of getting him out of bed, of the whole machinette of living with somebody that disabled, takes up a lot of energy and time. So there really isn't much 
space for any other problems to occur. I mean, who knows? I think what happens when somebody dies, and that's something I live in dread of, things that you've pushed aside come up. And maybe I'm highly critical of her. <laughs> but I'm very aware of just how remarkable she is. And him, both of them. But we're quite therapised, you know? And I think me being relatively happy at my age, in a very bumpy, sort of erratic, fickle not very reliable profession, has a lot to do with a solid start. And just to be explicit, when we talk about being a late developer, what I take you to mean is that... What do I take you to mean? I think something about fully embracing romantic love. Isn't that what it is, though? Like Without being too intimate. It's something quite deep and existential. You, you don't just mean getting your own house and a mortgage. You mean actually throwing yourself at the wide world in a complete way, and committing to a romantic partner. A romantic partner, but also I think it's to do with the confidence in yourself, in fulfilling yourself, in your potential and standing up to it, rather than hesitating or not inhabiting the space. It's taken me a long time to be confident. Inhabiting me has taken a long time to get used to and enjoy. I've been fantastically self-critical a lot of the time. I've grown into myself. It's the classic thing, as you get older, even though you're falling apart on the outside, inside, it's much more enjoyable, much more comfy. You've frozen in a stair or you've died. Hello? No, I was just <laughs> listening intently. Am I moving? Yeah, you're moving, yeah. yeah so yeah. I think what you say makes perfect sense. I don't quite know why I went down, started talking about love and romantic partners, when what you really meant was something more sensible and logical, which is being completely yourself owning your opinions and who you are and becoming who you are. That makes perfect sense. I think so. But also being a woman too, you know, when I was at Westminster, sorry to go back, I remember being really obsessed with being androgynous and Orlando, that book, and I just felt I had to wear waistcoats and really quite ashamed of being a woman or a girl, which, looking back on it, maybe it was to do with the time. Now, you know, women are being celebrated. It's the time of us in some ways. It's been investigated, you know, and so it's... Um... Well, let, let's explore that a little bit in the time we have left, because as someone who's been acting since the late 80s, you've been, at the, you know, at the top of your profession for, what would that be, more than 30 years? And clearly a lot's been said and written about the supposed Me Too moment that we've lived through, and this idea prevails that it's different for women now and that Hollywood has woken up, and then others would say... Hollywood isn't going nearly far enough. Is it your sense that things are getting better? better? And what is your take on all of that? It's better. There's no doubt. As womanhood being represented on screen and the type of woman and you've got older women, I'm 54, I'm getting much more interesting parts than I've ever been offered. And it's not just because I'm... Hopefully I'm better, because also the writing's there. I think for every actor, whether you're male or female, the writing generally is much more pro-character and it's much more satisfying and well-written. Good writing is getting done, much more good writing than before. We're allowed to age and we're allowed to not wear makeup. We don't have to be glamorous. We don't have to be sexual. But it is a very sexist profession and you go on set and it's 90% men. And it's always the women in the same jobs. It's always hair and makeup. It's just going to take a long time because it's the whole of history that we've got and equally with the pay. People are aware of it now, which is half the journey. So to what extent in working have you been aware in the past of predatory men? 
just to take Harvey Weinstein, he always comes up an example. I suppose he's the most glaring and obvious mm. example. I'd heard that he shouted at people, not that I'd necessarily hear Hollywood rumours anyway, but I'd never heard about his sexual assaults, right? Mm. Was that sort of an open secret or to what extent was that something that you um, had heard? I wasn't aware of him pursuing people against their will. I wasn't aware, certainly, of rape. I was aware that he would make passes at people and he did make a pass at me and I just said no and that was the end of it. He was also a bully and he obviously molested people and there was part of him that was unbelievable, was partly, I think, sociopathic. I saw him treat some people so badly and there was no compassion there and that was what disturbed me. How actively did he make a pass at you? Did he lay hands on you? No, he literally laid a hand, that's all. I mean, he was trying to give me a massage of my neck and I said, and I knew this wasn't going well, so I ran. Ran and said no. We got to the other side of the room. I haven't really spoken up about it because I kind of feel everything's been said about him. As far as other people's behaviour, I think in the past, I mean, Michael Winner was a bit of a shocker. I was 16 and auditioning in his The Wicked Lady. He wanted me to take my coat off so he could see my shape and I just thought, this is just lurid. I didn't have any shape. I mean, I had no boobs to really speak of, and so obviously I didn't get the part. So it's like... <laughs> but, you know, my part, luckily, in a way, my typecasting, which was all those in those corsets, I wasn't a sex symbol. And also I wore bags, you know. I was a shapeless, as Lynn Barber said, desexualized. And I think on some level I wanted to have parts that had something to say. Also, I certainly wouldn't have been confident enough to take my stuff off. But I did take my stuff off in costume dramas, so I'm totally hypocritical. The other respect in which I'm curious about your experiences is as someone who's collaborated with your husband, now your ex-husband, and you've said that in some ways, I suppose it was a disadvantage in as much as you said that he was embarrassed to cast you sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. You were in a position of power and then also a powerlessness or at least certain sense of does this look nepotistic or whatever. I mentioned it because I recently started working with my wife and I'd resisted doing it for a while. And and I'm really happy that now we work together. In many respects, our relationship feels like it runs more smoothly because she's no longer in competition with my the work. work. Does that make sense? I can completely understand At the same time, that. something in me was reluctant to commit to working with her because I suppose I worried that other people I was working with might think it was favouritism or that mm. it might make things awkward. Yeah, it can complicate. Obviously, you're in a different situation, but how did you find with collaborating him? with... Yeah. It so depends on the characters and it depends on the relationship that you have as working partners. On Planet of the Apes, when we weren't together, he was fantastically respectful, and he is, and he's a delight to work with. And then we frame a cropper on Sweeney Todd, particularly, because we both were out of our depths. I'd never sung before, he'd never done a musical... And it's that classic thing is that you take the stress out on the person who you know best. And we really didn't get on on that one. Amazing, I got pregnant, but let's not go into that. He was... <laughs> Save that for the X-rated podcast. Yeah. It was a very big change from the relationship at home, whereas basically he called me chief when we were together because I made all the decisions, which he was happy to abdicate. Not that I'd ever want to be chief, but I would talk. It was a different balance I sort of felt like I had to become a geisha girl a bit on set be very aware of what I said because 
he's a very sensitive man and he wants to have a clear mind. I think on some level, I was a hindrance to his concentration. He's a hilarious man and we had a lot of laughs, but there were times when working together was not harmonious. I mean, Johnny would just look at his razors as he was playing Sweeney. and Johnny Depp. Yeah, because we weren't actually very argumentative as a couple except on Sweeney. It might have been the subject matter, you know. Tim sort of identified with Sweeney and I was playing Mrs Lovett, so... (laughs) I like the idea of having an argument on set while filming Sweeney Todd and then Johnny Depp's there looking awkwardly at his razors. (laughs) I think Johnny Depp seems like the kind of person who's been around enough people, seen enough of the world, that he can cope with a domestic. Basically, Tim and Johnny are very shy. I don't think people realise that. And Johnny was caught in the middle. In the end, I realised I shouldn't really have any good ideas. If I had a good idea, I should give it to Johnny. If I gave it to Johnny, Johnny should mention it to Tim. And then it was a marvellous idea. If I mentioned it, it would be an absolute crap idea. So we worked our way through it. And the film got finished. And then Tim said, a year later, do you want to play the Red Queen? You know, I said, well, we're going to have to change our behaviour a bit. And the way we got through that was we both had Nerf guns. So we shoot each other whenever we got annoyed, and then it was okay. You should mention that to your mum, the psychotherapist. It sounds like that could be a breakthrough psychotherapeutic practice, <laughs> nerf gun therapy. You just shoot each other. In order to deal with discord, nerfology. We said we would talk a little bit about your... Um, well, I said we could talk about a little bit about your documentary. As far as I'm aware, you hadn't done the documentary before. They approached me about this one, so it was my first one. The main reason I wanted to do it was to have all these people on film who are of a certain generation. So I wanted to have the chance to have these conversations with my mom, with my uncle, with my cousin, my mom's first cousin, and because they're going to go in the next 10 years. I should set the scene a little bit because it was a documentary that was you exploring your heritage, specifically your grandparents on both sides. It's a four-part series called My Grandparents' War. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's social history through the perspective of one's grandparents. And in your case, you have a British side that were active politically in the UK. And then you have a continental side, sort of French-Spanish. French-Spanish, Austrian, Jewish. Austrian. And Jewish. They're very, very different sides. And it's always been like, you know, I'm made of very, very different lots of people, lots of genes. And I've always felt more foreign than English in a weird way. But what was interesting about that particular bit that we're talking about the Second World War and their contribution was that both sides ended up being much more alike than I thought, in the sense they were both very liberal. Both did a lot to help specifically get visas, get people out, out of danger. I'd always thought I would have loved to have been at my parents' wedding because they're such a weird mix of people and quite formidable characters on both sides. And I wondered how people would have gotten on. I also like the idea, quite romantically, that we are, what's the word, when you're like a container for all these other people's genes. Vessel, sure, yeah. Yeah, a repository, and you're carrying them. And on some level, we can carry on their intention, that we're here to maybe complete their dreams, or there's some kind of responsibility that we carry to them, or, in fact, a direction that if we listen to where we come from... That is our direction. We're not just randomly born. We're born with a whole lot of other people's whatevers inside us. 
I've also always felt a real responsibility to film these people, this generation. I'm so glad that I filmed my granny so I can show my children what their granny was like. And it's a world which was very, very different to the one that we have. And I wish on soul level we all... That's right, that was included in the documentary and it showed a lot of foresight on your part. It looked like it was shot in the mid-90s, I think. Was she in a chateau? Yeah, she was in a chateau. The house was something else. It looked like a mini Versailles. I was, wow. It's an amazing place, that. But also to have all these people all living on different floors. It's just mad. David Price Jones, who's my cousin, he wrote about it because he's a brilliant novelist and historian. And I'm so glad he's got it down because I do feel it's a great map for future generations, not of how to behave, but from where we come from. I wish on some level it was in the curriculum that we all interview our grandparents or our parents. I think definitely grandchildren should interview their grandparents because I think there's a lot that grandparents will tell grandchildren that they would never tell us, the middle, the sandwich, the parent. That's a good idea. Maybe that's a format. I think it Maybe is a format. Maybe you just came up with a brilliant TV format. When you get to the end of your life, you know a shed load, a shed load more than at the beginning. And there's so much to... Did you already have that idea or did we come up with that together? No. Whose IP is that? That was mine. Better be a paper trail, otherwise my lawyers can be quite aggressive. Well, if you could get your wife to produce it and they'll be very harmonious, but I think uh, (laughs) it was my idea. When you were growing up, did you think, I want to be a documentary maker? Definitely not. But I don't think I really knew what I wanted to be. I was basically a directionless young person with no clue as to what the future might hold. I think I thought I was supposed to be a writer because my dad was a writer. Yeah. And then in my heart of hearts, I doubted that I was really gifted in that way, that I, I didn't think I really was a writer. Was that because until, your dad was a writer? My dad's or, a writer and he was and still is. And, and then... And Marcel's writing. He's a writer. So I applied myself to... But you might still student. be a writer too. Because the thing is, it's a bit of a shame if they've just taken... and. You you disqualify yourself from being a writer just because those two are. At this point in the interview, I'm holding up a copy of Gotta Get Through This, My Life and Strange Times in Television. <laughs> That's why we're here. Which is a long way from being Bell let <laughs> It's not the Golden Bowl or indeed... What was the Henry James one you did? Wings of a Dove. Wings of a Dove. Yeah. Based on the Madness song. Was there a w- Madness? See, that's... Okay, that went over your head. I did Edith Piaf when I was meant to be listening to Madness. That was the kind of youth that I was. You know, that was a great... It's always good to end on a, a laugh. I don't yeah. know if that qualified as a laugh. Oh, it's good, oh, it's good enough. <laughs> You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest today has been actor and recent documentary maker Helena Bonham Carter. Next week, I talk to Sir Lenworth George Henry, better known to all of us as Lenny Henry. And remember, there are more conversations in this series. Just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4. The production team was Catherine Manan and Paul Kobrak. Doesn't he look nice? Yeah, he's very comforting. Does he come with you? Doesn't he? I've never met him in the flesh. He could be a bot, as far as I know. He might actually not be a real human. I've only seen him on a screen. Hey. 
Hey there, just jumping in after your podcast to ask if you've ever tried CBD oil or are tempted by tales of it helping with pain or anxiety. How about caffeine shampoo? Apparently that helps reduce hair loss. And have you ever sprayed on that one application a day sunscreen and wondered how long it really lasts, especially if you go for a dip? Well, I have answers. I'm Greg Foote and my series, The Best Things Since Sliced Bread, is back to run another bunch of wonder products and social media crazies through the evidence mill. If you want to know the facts behind the fads, come join me, Greg Foote, on The Best Things Since Sliced Bread, available now on BBC Sounds.